Welcome to the First Time Podcast. I'm your host, Tad. If this is your first time listening to First Time Podcast, it's really, really simple. Let me explain. Either me, the guest, or both of us are experiencing something for the first time. Usually it's a movie or TV show, and today is no exception. And then we talk about it. It's a casual conversation, um, just back and forth about our first time watch. And uh, my guest today is a fellow gorehound and the author of books such as House of Terror, Demented Double Feature, and Dead Air. Welcome Harley Ramsey to First Time Podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. So I guess where I wanted to start is sort of your background in horror and writing. Like, I've had authors on here before, and I always sort of brag on the show that I have this, like, stable of super talented friends that are all creatives, and then I'm sort of then realizing... me. <laughs> well, no, that's what, what I'm saying is, like, uh, you're actually, like one of those people like yeah. you're a writer you uh you've acted in short films you love horror just like me so it makes sense that like you know when i have those types of guests on the show it's like i, I start to realize like oh th there's a reason i'm friends with these people but um where would you say like your your love for writing started was it just something like when you started reading you're like i want to do this myself as a kid i was always very creative i would draw i I mean, even as a kid, I was writing stories, not really horror, but, you know, I, I just, I don't know, I like, I, I just like telling stories, I guess. I, I like writing stuff, so, you know. And most of your stuff, I mean, I would say all the stuff I, I've read is horror related. Do you write anything outside of the horror genre, or is that sort of what you try to stick to? That's mostly my wheelhouse, though, like thriller and some science fiction. But still in sort of uh, horror adjacent. Yeah. So where did that sort of love for it come? Because like when I was a kid, I started with like R.L. Stein, and I was like, oh, reading Goosebumps books felt like mm -hmm. punk rock. Like, you know, I'm not supposed to be reading these things. And then it sort of, you know, snowballed into like more grown up stuff. We, we had the scary stories to tell in the dark book, and I'd read that at night. And then I just sort of became it, it, it snowballed into like. TV, then movies, and now, you know, here I am now, but, like, where did your, because cause I, I didn't have, like, I had older siblings, but they weren't in the horror, like, where did yours come from? The, Ber the Berenstein Bears. <laughs> I'm, I'm serious. Yeah? As, as, a, as a kid, now, I look back on it now, and I think, oh, it's so obvious, but when I was in kindergarten, my kindergarten teacher, who was named Mrs. Grimm, that's true. That, there's a, yeah, red she, flag. Yeah, and, um... She had uh, one of the like the very early ones, like ones from like the seventies. It was called the Bernstein Bears and the Spooky Old Tree. Okay, and it came with a little recording, to like a little audio recording that they recorded. And every nap time, I would get that book out and I would put the recording in. And as I just, I loved it. It was kind of like a creepy. It's, it's a three of the bear cubs they go into the the spooky old tree, and they each one has like a kind of like a. a as like a talisman or something. Okay. One has a rope, one has a stick, one has a flashlight. Uh -huh. Into the course of, and they go into this tree, and of course this tree has like, like it's, it's bigger on the inside, it's like the TARDIS. Mm -hmm. And it has like all these different rooms, and throughout their journey through this um, tree, they, they, they lose their little tokens. So that, when, and when they lose it, they, they get the shivers. Okay. And so they get scared until the very end, and they run home and stuff like that but i mean and also um other like at the time you know there was beetlejuice and the adams family cartoon and I mean, there's all sorts of different uh horror or horror themed 
okay. stuff. And that was something that I look back on and I go, eh. it's like, I, I liked that as a kid. I liked other stuff, but that stuff as well was just like, I, I really, I liked that spooky stuff. Now at the time, as six, seven, eight, if you were to ask me if I liked scary stuff, I would have said no. Okay. But if I liked spooky stuff. Yeah. And then I would have said yes. Were you like a kid who loved Halloween? Like that was your holiday every year too? Oh yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of people like growing up that just in in our like people like us, like, you know, Halloween was like the best time of the year. Like Christmas, cool gifts, whatever. Mm-hmm. But Halloween was the one time that we felt sort of normalized. Uh, but like I said, I remember going to our school's library and like, I, you know, it was like a gateway drug is is uh, the Goosebumps books because they were they had some humor to them. They were innocent enough and but they still had an edge to them they were all you know scary stories and and it's crazy like looking back at that where it where it started and where you know now i'm like horror obsessed and do horror podcast and you know almost watch a different horror movie every day it's like you know my luckily my mom was really cool about like you know supporting anything how weird i was i I was the kid that had like blue hair and wore like leopard skin (laughs) pants and leather jackets and just you know spiked hair and just was a a complete weirdo but she would she was like you know embrace it and and do whatever and like you know people think like oh you must have grown up in a weird like upbringing or something (laughs) and i and i uh your mom and dad were mortician gomez right yeah exactly (laughs) no but uh so from like the berenstein bears and then it, it sort of snowballed and, and like, where did you start like getting into horror movies? Would you say? Uh, was, would have been about when I was in high school. Cause it kind of all came together, um, for my, I think it would have been my 17th birthday. I'd asked for some movies. One was the, uh, the last Lord of the Rings movie. Okay. And then also secret window. Cause I remember seeing, um, the advertisements for it and it looked looked really cool. I like kind of psychological horror stuff and and um when I and I got it and I watched it and I hadn't did not know it was by Stephen King. Stephen King had written a novella that it's based on and prior to that I kind of stayed away from Stephen King's I remember the Time Life commercials. Yeah. Remember those? Oh yeah. I remember watching those as about nine and saying to myself I'm not going to read that stuff. Cause like I said, I didn't, at, I was, I was a scaredy cat as a kid. Yeah. So, I mean, a scary scene in a movie just didn't have to be a horror movie, like Jurassic Park or right. Indiana Jones. Yeah. Like when in Temple of Doom, when they rips the guy's heart out, oh, I was yeah. out of the room. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I waited till that scene was done. I'd come back and, uh, but then I, I saw secret window and I really liked it. And that kind of got me into Stephen King. And so that was, and it, also kind of influenced me to be a writer. I kind of toyed with the idea of being a writer for years before that. Like I said, I've been writing since I was a kid. And like before I had had ambitions to become either an archaeologist or a paleontologist, and then maybe writing like, uh, you know, adventure novels like on the side, kind of because I was reading Clive Cussler novels at the time and Michael Crichton and all that. And that, but I'm, I'm not good at math. Or yeah. some sciences. <laughs> and so when I, I started getting reading Stephen King, and and this was the, really the first time I ever come across fiction that took place like in a in hometown 
America. Mm-hmm. You know, because everything else, like like I said, Clive Cussler or Michael Creighton, you know, those novels, those types of novels, they take place in exotic locations right. or whatever. And 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 I thought that's what you, you had to you know, have it take place in Egypt or France or somewhere like that. And when I read Stephen King's work, especially Salem's Lot, you know, I read that and all the townspeople, because I grew up in in and around um, small farm towns. Mm-hmm. All those characters, all those side characters, those are people I grew up with. Right. right. I've seen yeah. those people. Yeah. And so it really kind of told me like, oh, I don't have to go to the other side of the world for my story. I can tell stories here in Iowa. That's why most of my stories take place here. Because this is... I think that's sort of what like flipped my big switch. Like obviously, like I said, I, I read the stuff and watched a lot of horror and stuff. But like, I think the one movie that sort of changed it for me and I... I somehow find a find a way to bring it up almost on every episode but like john carpenter's halloween i think the reason that one specifically really hit me was because it was in haddonfield illinois and it was in a small neighborhood mm-hmm. and it was just a, a guy who murdered his sister and we had no rhyme or reason then he escapes and he's going through these house house by house and because the houses are so close because it's midwest right yeah and it's like this is real and this is here and like it's it's illinois in the fall with you know, leaves blowing in that cool breeze. And it's just sort of like, uh, I don't know. It just hit for hit home and, and made me realize like, you know, this isn't uh Dracula in a, in a big right. castle or, uh, you know, but of course I love those too. And I know you are more of a, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I've always associated you more with like the classic old horror movies. Like, I mean, you do love yeah. modern stuff and, and you're, you're a fan of the gore and the comedy and, and within horror and stuff. And, but it, I've always seen you as sort of like an old soul. I mean, I even know that you write on a typewriter, yeah. right? Yeah, I definitely favor more of the older stuff. It's I when it gets kind of more contemporary, like around the seventies, eighties, my taste in horror movies starts to kind of I don't like as many. Yeah, you have to be it, more it selective. To, yeah, right. I become yeah. much more selective. I mean, there's some, and I'm not sure if I would call myself. You know, a fan of gore. There are certain movies that have gory stuff in it, like Reanimator. Mm-hmm. I like Reanimator, but also it's because it's on, funny. Well, it's, and it's based on H.P. Lovecraft. Yes, that too. But that was well. That's how I kind of got into Lovecraft as well through that. And um, but like, yeah. So I re- I do love those old old movies, and they I mean they they've permeated the the pop culture everyone knows what frankenstein looks like everyone right. knows how dracula talks and, and all those stuff you know well what's interesting to me is like those classic universal monsters you know like you said they're part of our household that like household names everybody knows them like you're bo- you're sort of just born like even if yeah. you've never seen them you, you see know every every halloween you'll see a, an, an iteration of them right and there's a there's always like i mean when i was like seven or eight i remember dressing up as frankenstein's monster and going out with my sister and i Sort of funny, you know, I had the ill-fitting headpiece and my face was painted green, but my mom didn't want to put, like, makeup too close to my eyes. So I had, like, the white <laughs> eyes and, you know, wouldn't put on my neck. It was it was a really shoddy job, but I was just, you know, this is the coolest thing. Even mm-hmm. though at that age, I obviously seen, like, clips and stuff, but I, it's like, as a seven-year-old, I didn't sit down and watch the original Frankenstein, you know? And it's like, I think you're... I'm sort of glad I didn't see it as a young kid because I think I as I got older um, and then came back to it, I probably appreciated it more than I would have when I was young. Cause, uh, but it, it makes sense because like as a writer, you know, these, 
well, not just the typical, like these are but based on classic literature, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Mary Skelly's Frankenstein and, and Dracula. And, but it's like, it's interesting to me that these books were written and then Universal made these monsters. And it was like, they, they're the way they made them in the films, Universal, like, it was their own interpretation of these characters, but because they were first and because they were so iconic and Jack Pierce did such a great job with the makeup and Bella Gossi did such a great job with uh, his acting and performance and stuff that it's like, that's what we think of automatically. Like Mm -hmm. it was, it was an interpretation. It's not, you know, the way they acted them out was not something that was written in the book or the way they looked, you know, but it's like, from then on, Frankenstein always had to have like the flat, you know, the flat uh-huh. top on the head and the bolts on the neck and stuff. And then when when anybody tries to mix it up a little bit, it's like we're just like, yeah, it was fine. But, you know, Frankenstein right. looks weird. And it's like, well, even if it's more accurate to the book, you know, it, it, I just think about that a lot where I'm like Universal just came in and they just made them so iconic that we forget that, you know, these these were stories that were written books before they were interpreted into film. Well, and the thing about especially Dracula and Frankenstein, obviously they were made during the height of the Great Depression. And actually, um, what was uh, Carl Emley Jr., who was kind of in charge of the whole thing, uh, he actually wanted to make Dracula based on, very faithful to the, the novel. But obviously the Great Depression kind of, but the guy bosh on that because that would have been too expensive. And so um, both Dracula and Frankenstein are actually based on stage plays. So uh, that a uh, playwright named Hamilton Dean, he was a uh, British actor playwright, and uh, he did. So Dracula is mostly based off of that play. And then Frankenstein is based on an unproduced play by Peggy Webling. Yeah. One of the, but yeah. And then uh, I always, you know, later on, years later, when I was watching some like documentaries or something, realized I think it might have been when I got like the the Dracula DVD set or something and find out that there's like a Spanish version that they shot at the same time. They would they would film the English version and film the same scenes in Spanish mm-hmm. with a different actor and stuff. And it's like so wild to think about because now we just like whatever version comes out, we just, you know, put subtitles on or overdub it. Right. But back then it was like it's a shot for shot. Same movie. Well, I think they they thought that dubbing was cheating. Oh, and and, and you know, I almost wish you know their, they wanted people of their own nationality to to be playing those roles too. So and now the now the thing is, um, the trend currently is like if a foreign language film is or even TV shows are a big hit, U.S. market is like, well, let's make our version. And I'm like, but this one exists and it's fine, it's right? Like, yeah, but, but but we want to, people don't like to read, so let's just and it's like. <laughs> And they don't like overdub, so let's just make our own version. It's easy. We don't have to write anything. You know, it's already there. Cast a big name and redo it. And very seldom does it, to me, come out um, as good. Like, let me in and let the right one in. That yeah. one's sort of the exception. A lot of people think that uh, the, the English version is uh, pretty good, but very unnecessary. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, it's it's interesting. And And like I said, I know... I'm very curious. I've never asked you this, even though I've known you forever. Um, you write on a typewriter. Yeah. But how does it go from typewriter? I know, are you self-published? Yes. I've, the authors, other authors I've had on here are self-published. So how do you go from typewriter to a physical book? Because I know you have to turn in something digital, right? Well, yes. Now, for those of you listening, he's making me sound like I'm a Luddite. <laughs> I do have a computer. I have two. Yeah, he, he came have, out with a smartphone. I have, I, 
I, I have a desktop computer and a laptop, which I actually bought a new laptop recently. So I, yeah, the first draft is always written on a typewriter. And then I go and I retype it into the computer and that's my second draft and make my whatever changes. And then I format it to however the, the publishing um, system that I use requires it. And that's, it's a lot simpler then. So I guess why, why the first draft on a typewriter? Is it? Well, one, I have ADHD and I get very distracted. Computers have so many distractions, like oh, yeah. the internet and all that. I can be, you know, I I will spend untold hours just scrolling through YouTube and not get a thing done. So the typewriter is just one way of just taking out that those distractions. Okay. And then also just I like using typewriters. They're just they're, I like the the feel of them and the tactileness of them and um like there's just a different like I'm looking at your laptop here laptops the keyboard is so far away yeah from the edge because you have to put the mouse pad there and I don't really like that and, and typing on a laptop's kind of like typing on a on a bathroom scale and <laughs> and some computer like desktop computer keyboards are like I don't like the feel of them though I did uh, get I recently bought a mechanical uh, keyboard for my computer, which is a lot better. A lot kind of like the older style, like from okay. the nineties. Yeah, that you that's, can actually that's a hear lot the, better. I, yeah, yeah the, I prefer that feel, and and it's just like, I don't know. I just like using the typewriter. I mean, I can appreciate like like I I can totally get why you would do it because like you know like i said the feeling and not being distracted and it's just sort of like puts you in a time like a mind frame of like yeah i'm here doing it and it's uh you know very uh something of the time it's, it's like someone spinning a vinyl record you yeah. know it's like i can hit play on spotify and it'll go right through but you know something about the cleaning of the record and putting it on having a nice needle yeah. and a nice sound but but like the idea to me of like, and now that I'm, you're telling me that you do like a second draft on the computer, mm -hmm. it makes sense because it's like you're gonna have to type it up again anyways. Yeah. But I, but to me, it's like you know, I was I was just sort of questioning like, you know, he's he's doing a typewriter, then he has to take that, and I thought maybe you had like someone that you you just like here's ten bucks, type this up for me. <laughs> I wish I did. <laughs> um, but no, I mean it's just kind of part of the process. Like I said, like is my first drafts. I don't really. With, I don't really have an outline. I don't outline ahead of time. I usually I have like the bones of the plot in my head when I start, but I just you know I just kind of start and I I, I I'm a seat of my pants writer. That's okay. One of the things they call in. Yeah, so I don't really. I've tried outlining, but I just for some reason I can't do it when when I'm writing a story. I can do well, it if I write a script, but I can't do it for a story. Well, everybody sort of has a different process, and uh, you know, there's no right or wrong ways to do it. And uh, I'm always interested to hear just because you know I did creative writing in like high school and college, and I was like, this is fun, but it's not for me. Like right. I always find it fascinating when you have somebody in film that's like. They're just a writer, you know, and a lot of writers will, will start as writers and then they sort of are like, well, now I want to direct. Yeah. And, you know, there's some successful writers who turn director who, who write and direct or vice versa. But it's like I've always had a huge uh, respect for people who are just like, I just like telling the story. I'm just a writer and that's what I'm going to do and stick to it. Yeah, I've in college and a couple of years after me and my friends 
would make Batman fan films, and I you know, wrote some of those. I also directed and acted in them. And directing and making a movie is way different than just writing. Oh, yeah. Because when I'm just writing, it's just me. I, you know, I control, I say I control everything. And and when it's directing, it's like you have to kind of schedule things out, make sure, you know, this person's going to be here. You know, you can actually, you have to be, also be, make sure you can do what you're writing. It's It's right. way too easy to write a scene than to film it. Right. Well, I hear that all the time is like, you know, pe- writers have to sort of be flexible when it comes to film um, because especially in no or low budget films, because it's like realizing I have to cut this and this and this to make it because this stuff simply cannot be made on screen. You know, we're, we're getting better right. at it. You know, there, we, stuff we can do now that we couldn't do five, 10 years ago is pretty yeah. impressive. Uh, but it's, you know, at the core, like you can't have a good, film without a good story and i've like i said i've always appreciated writers just because they're sort of the unsung heroes when, when, a, new really movie, are, when yeah. a new movie comes out it's like everybody thinks of the star and and it, it comes first as like the stars of it mm-hmm. and then like there's there's like the, the general public okay we see that you know johnny depp or or vin diesel whoever is in this the rock is in this and that's all they need to know they don't give a shit who right. wrote it or directed it and then like the next level of like filmmaking, like film fans is like, OK, who may who's the who's the director of this? And then like the next step is like, who's the writer? And then mm-hmm. even below that is like the editor, producer, that kind of thing. But uh, I always felt like writing always gets like a, it, it doesn't get the respect that it deserves. Oh, it definitely does not. And it's been like that for there's like for no a rock star, rock star, no like rock star screenwriters. <laughs> Authors, on on the other hand, like, you know, they're, I mean, there's, there's a handful of, uh, you know, household names. I mean, like you said, Stephen King, we can't right. like not bring him up on this uh, right. because he's sort of like the guy. I mean, I, I stepped up, you know, from, from R.L. Stein when I was like, okay, I'm ready to like graduate and move on. Yeah. And I made the big, huge jump to Stephen King and is probably a little much for me. I, I, I started with, uh. Some of the ones with like the short short stories because like oh I heard like Children of the Corn is a short story yeah. I, and you know I started reading those and that was the easy bridge to yeah. go from uh, because it's like big thick book but you know I can I can read it in parts and then I remember going to like Carrie was a little shorter but then like it was was freaking oh, yeah, huge it's... and I was like I really want to read this but uh, this is really a, an intimidating book uh, you know and I think. Uh, trying to think of what other ones were were really big to me but um i don't remember cujo was a huge one just because the character was named tad in it and i had it oh yeah like, when i was a kid i was like you know they had those in like the middle school library i think uh elementary school i don't think they were stocking the stephen yeah, king yeah that's, um, that's a little yeah. little, little heady for but, the, but i do remember like reading him and like you know going from the simple stuff. And it's like the next step up, like I, I should have probably taken a middle ground because I mean, Stephen King, like the way he gets into describing stuff, it's like, I'm like six pages in on like <laughs> learning what this woman looks like. Who's about to just get run over by a truck. You know, it's yeah. like, well, he even uh, talks about that. He talked about it in an interview. He said, he never knows where to, to, to begin or where to, yeah. Something like that. Like in order to like, he'll say something like, like here's this character but in order for you to know about this character you got to talk about their father and then talk about the father you got to talk about the grandfather or whatever you right know, all that so it's like he has a problem so he he admits that he has that problem 
Um, yeah, I don't. I don't think he has quite that problem now because I, I still read I still read every book he puts out, and I think either his editor really takes that stuff out, yeah, <laughs> or he's, or he's just, more conscious of it now. Yeah, um, but yeah, but like yeah, when I read Stephen King, I didn't read his books in any specific order. Like obviously, the first one was the Four Past Midnight collection, which had Secret Window in it, and then. I think Salem's Lot was the next one I read. And at the time, because I got it at Walmart, and at the time there was, they had a couple of Stephen King, like Carrie and Salem's Lot and The Shining and Pet Cemetery. I think there was, like, those four books were out in a, like, special paperback editions that had intros and stuff. And and so I read that. I, I, I was also... Uh, my high school had two biographies of Stephen King. One is was a like a I don't know what uh, like a spotlight kind of series and kind of went through this very kind of sparse biography, but it it had like pictures and talked some of his books and I think it was like kind of through that when I would reread that particular book, like if one of the titles really jumped out at me, it's like okay, I'm gonna read that one next. Yeah. And, it wasn't, yeah. For me, it was always the covers, like the cover art. Yeah. Uh, and, and so many memorable ones. I mean, like, you know, I remember thinking, like, looking back, I was like, oh, I have no interest in Christine, even though it had a cool cover, but it's like a killer car. I'm like, yeah, you know, this is probably stupid. And then I saw John Carpenter's film on it, and then that brought me back. I'm like, oh, now I want to read it, because Carpenter always openly talked about, like, how he felt he... I mean, he's always been self-deprecating, but he was yeah. like, you know, I tried to make a car scary. It didn't work, you know, and <laughs> he's he sort of trashed his own movie. And I'm like, if he thinks this sucks, like, I want to read the book. And, and you know, and it was pretty good. And uh, it, he's one of those like, it's crazy to think about, like, all the Stephen King titles. I mean, he really is like the rock star of horror mm-hmm. authors. But, yeah. uh, you know, it's like, who would you say your your some of your biggest influences or, or favorite writers that sort of... Um, inspired you to begin and, and continue to inspire you to write well definitely the what i call the big three stephen king edgar Allan poe and hp lovecraft okay. were definitely um influences but i also read uh robert block he's famous for writing psycho um and then harlan ellison um I'm trying to think um uh robert e howard he wrote the conan the barbarian stories um Yeah, I'm trying to think who all. Yeah, I also uh, Michael Creighton and uh, yeah, another like that was also a, a, somebody for, who's had yeah. yeah him and Dean Koontz. I'm like, you go to any like library sale or used book sale, and you're gonna mm. you find hundred books by them. Yeah, you know, it's just incredible the amount of output that like those you know him Stephen King. It's just crazy to like. Do you ever not? Do you ever just enjoy the day or do you just write constantly? <laughs> you know, it's crazy. Well, they. They enjoyed writing, and I, Michael Crichton was really fast at writing, so he could he could yeah. bump out a book really quick, from what I read. So, um, obviously, most of the time was in research because his stuff is very scientifically based, right. and so. But the actual writing process was very quick for him, I believe, and also for Stephen King as well. You know, but like King is he is the writer's writer. He enjoys writing like yeah. almost like a, it's almost like a religion for him like, yeah. he just enjoys it it feels like some of those guys uh 
it's almost like if they're not writing, they're they like will get into trouble or something. It's almost like I have to do this to right. clear my mind, like because it's just it's like in here. And there's, I mean, that goes for like I, I think about some filmmakers too. Um, Ridley Scott, like the guy's like eighty something, and he had House of Gucci and uh, I forget his his medieval movie. And it's oh, like the last duel. Or yeah, something yeah, like and that? it's like the dude came out with like back-to-back epic huge movies the guy comes out with like two or three movies a year in his 80s and it's like he's you know it's like he can't just sit idle he's like a workhorse or something and and it's just so impressive to me that every time i see a new stephen king book out i'm like god damn does he ever sleep like how does you know but when when (laughs) you get to that he has kind of slowed down a bit like sometimes it's on average it's like two books a year but there's been a couple years that's been one but they're not uh the last like his you know doorstop books was under the yeah under the dome that was back in 2009 when that came yeah. out but all the others have been kind of average sized and well, do you have anything you're working on currently i am i'm you don't I'm have to spill you, on, i'll say no you don't yeah. have to spoil anything or, or spill any beans i don't want to get in any trouble but well uh, i am working on a, a novel i'm finally reaching the end and i wish i could say because i've been working on it for two years uh, I wish I could say it's a big, thick book like a The Stand or something, but no, it's going to be just an average-sized book. It's just, I don't... You know, sometimes, like I, like I said, I have ADHD, so I'll get up and do something else, and so I don't... I wish I had, like, the Stephen King kind of, you know, be able to sit there and write uh, 2,000 words a day, but I, I just don't... I don't have that. I know, I'm, I don't think I'm also built to write novels i think i do better with short stories and yeah. on that topic i'm uh gonna have a new short story collection out this summer uh hopefully by the time i go to uh planet funk con in in uh june okay so that'll be premiered there and yeah because you are at a lot of um well one you do a lot of cool events down at our local bookstore brown to mm-hmm. the book but like Anytime there's a convention or horror related event in the area or even like uh, Haunted Jefferson, like your fingerprints are all over, you know, (laughs) and it's like I I was telling a friend um, I was having you on the show and they were like, do I know him? And I was was like, you probably seen him at Halloween Palooza. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah. okay." (laughs) it it was like uh, they remembered because I was yeah, I was telling them, you know, I'm having my friend who's an author on it's like you know remember the guy from this or this one or he was at this one too or this one and it's like you know jump from from show to show and and hustle those books and i've always like again like seeing authors at these shows i'm always like authors and filmmakers alike it's like you know it's really hard to sell people on something they yeah you know people are just like movies it's like if i don't recognize somebody in the in acting in it or writer director something i you know it's really hard to sell someone the average person on it. But then again, at these types of shows, people are there because they're horror fans or, or yeah. fans of books, you know, at the bookstore, they, they come down for that. It's not like you're sitting in the middle of a, of a city square asking strangers, you know, that these right. people are, are there for that. But it's like, you know, it's, it's a, uh, it's definitely a side hustle of like trying to not only just get it written and out, which is a huge accomplishment. I've right. always, you know, it's like, you're saying, you know, you wish you could uh, write as fast as like a Stephen King or be that motivated. But even if you were that motivated, you have a a life, you know, yeah. outside of writing. And he doesn't, you know, he, <laughs> he he created this world. And, you know, I remember hearing like 
he sold the rights to the to carry to, to film and it was like five thousand dollars or something like i don't remember yeah I it, don't was, remember what the... it was an incredible small amount you know and it's like looking back and now i imagine he you know he they back up a semi of cash to him to um actually um well okay so with carry when he he originally sold the book the the advance for the hardcover was twenty five hundred dollars which was a lot of money for him at the time because he, he and his wife were dirt poor right like and but the paperback rights sold for four hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. And at the time, Doubleday, the publisher that accepted Carrie, took uh, always like split that half with the author. So he got two hundred thousand dollars for the paperback rights. Yeah. And that allowed him to uh, retire from teaching in right full time. Now today, um, because he is so famous, um. He's got a deal with Scribner, his current publisher, which uh, he does not get like million dollar advances because the way it works is the advance is paid back by the sales of the book and you don't get royalties until after that advance has been paid off. Okay, yeah. And if, you know, if they were to give him two million dollars in advance for his next novel, uh, they would have to sell two million however many copies it would be right, to, to make, make that, that money. back yeah and so and because he doesn't need the money he's you know, right he's got so he much over the past 50 years he has that enough that he'll never spend it all yeah right so his current deal is i think he gets just like an average advance which is like maybe fifteen hundred two thousand dollars and then he just they just give him the royalties that's how he makes money now yeah and he's at that comfortable spot where i'm just saying like you know we we had sort of a a king resurgence like every it feels like every 10 years or so like you know it spikes back up when we see new adaptations of his mm-hmm. his stuff like firestarter the trailer just came out uh you know obviously it and it chapter two were huge juggernauts and yeah. sort of reignited those flames where it's like okay now we got to go out and it, what's cool about it is is like it's not your average remake where it's like you know john carpenter's films they went back and they remade them everybody's like oh they're not right. as good where it's like with this it's like Okay, we're t- we're going back to the book and we're taking right. a new to me it's not it's a very different thing when you have a source material you're you know to me it's not a remake of that film it's a new adaptation of mm-hmm. that book it's a whole different world but uh you know it's just it, it's sort of cool just to see you know and I I'm always hopeful like you know and I didn't mean to make this a whole Stephen King thing <laughs> but, but I think about like you know how growing up it was sort of like oh Stephen King's a great author but all the movies based on his books tend to suck and it's like well yeah. you look at the ones that were done by good filmmakers it, it came down to that like it's never you know about the the books have always been good it's just about who you hire to make them like like right you know you get John Carpenter to do Christine that movie rules because John Carpenter made it and he's a right. good he's a good director he knows how to take that you know and well I I had come across because I'd always noticed that too because like for me Secret Window captures the feel of of a Stephen King book better than any other movie. And I was trying to figure out, because I know, like, I had seen some of the adaptions, too, and I thought, like, there's something not right. There's something yeah, missing. missing. And yeah. I feel like, what is that? And and one of my other favorite authors, Harlan Ellison, who did, he also did, um, he was also a critic, and in one of his critiques, he... Uh, talks about this and he says that the reason why most Stephen King adapted movies suck is because Stephen King writes 
in an allegorical form. His stories are allegories. And when that either the filmmakers aren't aware of that or it just automatically gets jettisoned when yeah, it's, it gets lost in translation. Yes, yeah. it, and so I think that's the problem that filmmakers need to uh, you need to have someone who understands what the allegory is. I and mean, you don't have to follow the plot of a book step by step. As long as you, the most important things in a in a book adaption are the themes and the allegory or the metaphors, and you know, because uh, let's take a Jurassic Park for instance. If you've read the book, it's plot wise, the movie is not really faithful to it, right? But in terms of the themes, it's very faithful. So I always feel like that's a very faithful adaptation of the book because it it talks about those themes and and other stuff that's in there and you know it's it's not about necessarily the plot yeah i wish there were some scenes that were in the movie but you know well before one more thing before we finish with our uh before we actually get to the topic of uh our podcast but um thinking about that where do you stand on the whole debate on Kubrick's The Shining versus Stephen King's The Shining? Because I know Stephen King is open that he's not a fan because of it's it's such a loose interpretation that it didn't follow a lot of his book. Well, the the main problem is The Shining, the book, is about the disintegration of the family. Um, the Jack Torrance character, he's an alcoholic. He's, uh, I would say, probably a reluctant abuser like he came from an abusive family and so that kind of uh, uh became part of like his nature mm-hmm. and so and so it's really about the disintegration of the family now i have only seen the kubrick shining i've not seen the the one directed by mick garris right um but like i i don't know i'm not particularly like i've i've only watched it once and i'm like it's it's an okay film to me i don't I see where King's coming from, but I mean, I, I, you know, I don't know. I just, I'm probably, you know, I just don't, I don't care for it. It's just, I don't know, not, I don't know. There's something about it. It's just, I didn't care for it at the time. It's not like I actively hate it or anything, but it's just kind of, uh, I, I, I agree that it is a cold film yeah. and like the Jack Torrance character feels crazy at the beginning. There's not like a, uh decline de- yeah there's yeah. not a descent into it and so yeah. it's kind of no i can see that like as someone that came to the film first before even knowing it was a stephen king uh novel and i haven't i i admit i have not read it i've always been sort of curious like i should take the time and read it and see you know exactly how far off it is and and i've talked to a lot of writers and and people who are well read and, and read stephen king and they sort of have the same idea of like you know, it's a fine movie, standalone movie, if you don't compare it to the book. Right. I think um, probably on its own. I mean, if I had, I think I watched it after I read the book. And if I had seen it before, maybe I'd have a different opinion. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's, like I said, I mean, if we can go back, like I saw Jurassic Park before I read the book, but I don't, I don't feel like it's a, 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 a bad adaption of it. Right. I enjoy both equally for their own thing. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, I, I think keeping an open mind like that. And you, I mean, I know Joe Rogan had this bit about like people who read love to like, if there's a, a movie that comes out 
and it's based on a book. They're like, you thought the the, the movie sucked. You should you need to read the book. And he, he's always sort of made this this bit about like people who say that just want you to know that they read. And he's like, they just want to sound so smart in a room. Uh, he's like, if I can just watch a movie an hour and a half instead of reading a book, it's going to take like a week or whatever of, of dedicated time. Why would I read the book? And, you know, it's like, well, it's not always the same, you know. Yeah. And, and there's different people like, you know, um, some people like as I've gotten older, I have a much harder time focusing and spending the time. I have all kinds of great books I need to catch mm-hmm. up on. And I'm absolutely guilty of it. I, I put them on my nightstand to eat. So they're there every day when I see yeah. them, when I go to bed and I'm like, I should really read those because they're, I've spent money on them. They're awesome. They sound, you know, I, I'm excited to read them and I'll start. And then I just, something happens. Yeah. I'm, I'm the same way. I have a big pile of books next to my bed. It's like a, like a growing guilt trip. Like, yep. <laughs> God, I need to finish these things. And, you know, cause I always get more stuff and there's always, yeah, always something going on. and. You know, I, yeah, I've I've been that kind of person where it's like, oh, the book was better, but then there, you know, there's been a couple instances like I'll, you know, I'll go back to Secret Window. I think the movie is actually better than the original story. I think it streamlines a lot of a lot yeah. of it. You know, I'm sure that's blasphemy to say that about Stephen King, but it's <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, it's it's still a good story, but you know, I think the movie just the adaptation is much better, in my opinion. Well, speaking of movies, we'll eventually finally get to what we came here to talk about. I knew, I mean, that's what podcasts are for is, is chatting with friends. But yeah. uh, we sort of bounce back and forth on ideas because there's a lot of old horror movies I haven't seen. I mean, people think like when they come on here, they're like, you know, I can't possibly suggest a movie you haven't seen. There's a lot of movies I haven't seen. Like, Right. Well, like when we were planning this, I was what I was trying to say, like, our tastes in horror movies are different. You know, like you said, I like the older stuff. I think you like the the more recent stuff. And so the the overlap of that Venn diagram of what movies both of us have not seen is pretty thin. Yeah, I think. Yeah, but even now I'm like, well, maybe we should have done Secret Window. I, I don't think I've actually seen okay. the whole well, thing. But you, you know, know what? Bring me back on. We'll do that. Say, we'll bring say, I'll, I'll... When you have your next, uh, when, when you wrap up this book that you're writing, you know, and have you back on to, to push it, uh, We'll definitely have you back on, and and we we could probably do a, a new show every week without uh, fault because even yeah. I've never I, I say this on almost everything on every episode I've never seen a Lord of the Rings movie either, and people yeah. are like, oh my god, how have you not done that? Um, <laughs> There's always you know I always get, am very surprised when someone says they don't they have never seen like the original Star Wars movies. I'm like, how have you not seen them? Like it's such a but, part of our but, culture. But, but, how but have that, you not seen it? But then you're like. Let's go watch Star Wars, yeah. right? Yeah, and I want to hear what you think about it. But uh, we we finally landed on one that was in your collection that sounded uh, interesting to me. Is something was it just like a blind buy to you? Yeah, I had. It was one of those things. I can't remember which. I, no, I was. Uh, there was a movie that I have in like one of those like uh, um like multi packs. Yeah, the multi pack yeah. things that I had since college. But like, there's something with the DVDs. Like they they don't play on every single. Yeah, they're VCR they're, for some reason. They're, they're, I think they're like burnt, uh, like copies. Probably, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so there's a, and I had, and all the other movies, like I, either they were in different compilations or I bought them, uh, for like it was the first time I had ever seen uh, the Cabinet of Doctor Caligari and Nosferatu was on that same one, and I have those on all the, the public Blu-rays. domain stuff. Yeah. yeah, and so the movie, the movie on talking about is here in america it's called horror hotel but i think over in england they call it city of the dead and it'd been and it was released on blu-ray and it 
was one of those that I always like I need I know I should buy this to have because I, I enjoy it. That's a very spooky atmospheric film. It's got Christopher Lee in it, so you yeah. can't go wrong. And you know, when you go on Amazon and they say oftentimes, oftentimes bought with this, you know, they have the and so this was one of the those movies. The other one was uh when the de- uh the devil rides out. Oh yes. So, we we covered that one on Attack of the Killer podcast. And yes, that, that was my first time watching it. That was awesome. Um, but we finally came to one that we both had not seen because I always think those are fun mm-hmm. when neither of us have seen it's it's a roll of the dice because I'm still yeah. on a streak. I'm like almost 80 episodes in and I have yet to find a movie I did not uh, yes. have fun with. But uh, we're going to talk about Burn Witch Burn, a.k.a. Mm-hmm. Night of the Eagle. Burn Witch Burn. I want some kind of explanation. But is it obvious? I'm a witch. Can another woman's fiendish jealousy possess and injure her? Don't answer. Hello. Hang up, Norman! Take me in your arms. Oh, Norman. After you've undressed me with your eyes, I hunt. Is this woman really a voodoo witch, conjuring evil spirits to do her sinister bidding? Shocking powers of witchcraft. Powers that can even bring a stone eagle to life. Okay, so Burn Witch Burn, um, we'll, we'll call it that for easy sakes, because that's what we went into. Um, yeah, that's, that's what's as, on the Blu-ray cover. Right, that's what it's known by now, but um, was written by Charles Beaumont, Beaumont, uh, Beaumont Richard Matheson, mm-hmm. and uh, based on the uh, story by Fritz Lieber, also George Baxt, yes, um, directed by Sidney Hayers, uh, and before I even get into the cast, like these people have a huge track record. I know you took some notes on mm-hmm. uh, Charles and Richard. What do, do you have some of their credits as to what? Cause I always like to say like, okay, th- we're talking about this, but what else are they known for? 
Well, uh, we'll start with Charles Beaumont. Um, he wa- he wrote several episodes of the original Twilight Zone. Yes, which one of my favorites of all time. Maybe my favorite television series of all time. Uh, yeah, he did a bunch of other... 22 episodes I have in my notes. 22 okay. episodes of Twilight Zone. That's a lot. Yeah. Uh, he also adapted the Mask of the Red Death for Roger Corman. Yes. And also the Haunted Palace. Cool. All the, I believe... And I, I also that. saw um, Alfred Hitchcock presents a few of those. He, yeah, he, I think he did. He, wrote. he was mostly known for screenwriting. He did uh, some horror and science fiction short stories, but I don't. He did. There was a like a couple novels I had seen that I came across, but they're not. They weren't in that genre, and they were like different uh, under different names too, and. Um, he died at a rather young age. He died at the age of 38. Wow. Yeah, he had, according to Wikipedia, he at the age of 34, which is how old I am, so that's scary, <laughs> um, he began suffering from, uh, he was diagnosed with a simultaneous Alzheimer's and Pick's disease. At 34? At 34. Holy shit. Which Pick's disease nowadays is called behavioral variant frontotemporal dementia. And it causes a change in behavior. Um, like, for him, uh, usually it's either it makes the sufferer impulsive or disinhibited or listless and apathetic. And the latter is kind of what happened to him. It also aged him really rapidly. By yeah. the time he died, he looked like he was 95. Wow. Uh, and, yeah. And then Richard Matheson has... An incredible, like, I, I just started writing, typing up all the shit he, he uh, wrote, but you probably have some of that in your notes, too. I do. He He's probably most famous uh, for writing the book I Am Legend, yes. which has been adapted three, three four times now. Right. Um, he's all, he was also a, a screenwriter. He also wrote for The Twilight Zone. He wrote The Nightmare at 20,000 Feet for Twilight Zone. Probably the most famous episode, yeah. yeah. Uh, he adapted, I think he's the one that adapted most of Corman's Poe pictures mm-hmm. and with a couple exceptions. Yeah. House of the Usher, the Pit and the Pendulum. Yeah. Uh, Terror Tales and the Raven, I think. Yeah. Um, he also adapted The Devil Rides Out and he wrote the, the teleplay for The Night Stalker, yep. Carl Kolschak. Yeah. Was... Yeah. I also had, uh. Alfred Hitchcock Hour, so there's yeah. a little, little uh, I mean, back then it was like Hitchcock had, you know, TV oh, movie, yeah, everything. Like the... Yeah, just put his name on everything. Uh, he did 14 episodes of The Twilight Zone as well, so that's probably how he met Charles. Yeah. Um, he did uh, one episode, wrote one episode of the original Star Trek, which I thought was really cool. Um, Duel. Yes. Uh, that's cool. Stir of Echoes. Yep. Um, Amazing Stories, which was Steven Spielberg's uh, short-lived TV show, and then one that stood out on his resume for me was Jaws 3D. Like, this guy's got an incredible oh, resume. Oh, he did, he did and then, the screenplay for that? Yeah, I did not know that. Yeah, and that one's a blast. I mean, it's not a good movie, but right. it's, it's a hell of a lot of fun. It's notoriously fun. Um, and then it's funny, because then we have, like, uh, George Bext, and the only thing I really saw that I recognized was The City of the Dead on his list. Okay, so he wrote that one. Yeah. Then. Um, and then, uh, like I said, directed by Sidney Hayers, uh, he ended up doing mostly TV. He did like 
Edmonton, the Magnum PI, Remington Steel, TJ oh, okay. Hooker, Knight Rider, the A Team. He had a he had a type, and then Baywatch, which is just so weird to think. Like he directed this movie and then went on to be like Baywatch. I mean, like staples of the eighties. Ba- babes and 90s. in swimsuits, running in slow motion. Yeah, on the and, beach. and cool dudes with mu- mustaches in Miami. It just what a what an interesting uh, resume for him, but. Um, Starring this movie has Peter Weingard as Norman Taylor, Janet Blair as Tansy Taylor, Margaret Johnson as Flora, Anthony Nichols as Harvey, uh, Colin Gordy as Lindsay Carr, Kathleen Byron as Evelyn, uh, Reginald Beckwith as Harold, and Jessica Dunning as Hilda. So we have a pretty small cast here. Yeah. Um, obviously, our star is uh, Norman, and then sort of co star Janet. Uh, Blair, who who plays Tansy, his wife. Um, I'll read a basic premise, and then we can just sort of casually talk about this movie. Um, A skeptical college professor discovers that his wife has been practicing magic for years. Like the learned... Like the learned, rational fellow he is, he forces her to destroy all of her magical charms and protective devices and stop that foolishness. He isn't put off by her insistence that his professional rivals are working magic against him, and her protections are necessary to his career and life. So this came out in 1962, mm-hmm. black and white, very classic uh, feel with the the cool old score. Mm-hmm. Um, back in sort of the satanic panic days, where it was like witchcraft, uh, satanism. I think this is before that. Uh, like the satanic panic occurred actually more in the the 80s. Um, but yeah, it was a little before because then. Later in the 60s, you get like Anton LaVey and his Satanic Church or the Satanic, whatever the it was. There's, there's two there's two Satanic things. I don't I can't get them straight. But it's very much like witchcraft is is terrifying. It can happen yeah. to you type of thing. But I thought it was pretty, you know, for 62, I thought it was sort of uh, ahead of its time where it's like. This pretty young wife can just, you know, it's not like your typical like old hag. Right. Yeah. Witchcraft like. She was, you know, a beautiful blonde that lived with him, and he was a handsome young mm-hmm. teacher that was, you know, um, sort of buff, and the, the students yeah, admired he's, him. He's, he's really muscled. Yeah, yeah. Like, he's like jacked, and uh, <laughs> and it's like, you know, I thought it was interesting just because it was like not your typical portrayal of, of witchcraft when you right, think about it. Yeah. Like, if I if you just threw the title "Burn Witch Burn" out there, you would think it's like a Haxon or something, you know, old timey. Right. Um, old hags and, and, you know, dance around a fire and stuff. And this is interesting. Like it starts off and he's teaching like a lesson. Um, and, and I'll, I'll get into a little bit in trivia. There are some cool little nods. I noticed, um, watching this and, and I didn't, I'll say like for this podcast sake, I was really tempted to go back and watch it again to see if there's anything I missed, but I'm like, mm-hmm. we'll talk about it the first time. I'll, I'll rewatch this later. Cause this would be a fun one to bring up on attack of the killer podcast. To let the other guys, if they haven't seen it, watch. Cause um, I really liked it. Okay, this, yeah. was this your first watch too? It right? was too. Yes. What did you What did you think? Yeah, I liked it too. I I don't know if I would count it as maybe as a favorite. I but it's definitely not a it's not a shitty movie by no, any stretch no. of imagination. No, it's, like you said, the the writing. Just when I started looking at, you know, I I always do this reading. I, I always look up everything after I watch it because I want to go in like as blind as possible. Mm-hmm. Um. I didn't even know like what year this was out until I looked it up. And, and this is another um, plug. I watched it on Hoopla. Okay. 
which you can get free with your Burlington Public Library card. So if oh, okay. you're in the area nice. and you and you should have your library card, um, you can get a service called Hoopla, which is like streaming. They have all kinds of great stuff, including movies, and it's just like a library, but it's digital. So you borrow the movie. Oh, okay. So like I, I I borrowed it yesterday, and I can watch it till like Monday. You get like four days to watch it, um, and it's free. Okay. And so if you're listening to this and you're in the area, in your library, even if you're not in the area, your library might have Hoopla. It's very common. Um, but it's a great tool. You can watch this for free. But um, back to what we were saying is basically like this this sort of handsome younger teacher, and he's got everything going for him. Yeah. Not only is he like super handsome, he has the hot wife. He, the the students are sort of like the the one in particular. You can tell yeah. sort of has a thing for him and very flirty. Um, it's like the guy has all the good looks, the smarts, everything going for him. And then, you know, you see his, his hot wife and I think they're playing like bridge that night. Yeah. I, could, with, yeah, with I the, think something like that. Like yeah. there's a scene where he's like walking out of class and they're like bridge tonight. He's like talking to one of the other teachers and there's sort of this weird tension between him and some of these other teachers where they're like, you know, Oh, he's, he's going to be getting this promotion. Yeah. And even though these other, this other teacher has been there longer and he's older and you know, he is sort of like, he should be getting it but this this younger uh norman is is expected to get it and they're playing i think like i said bridge later that night as like a group and there's a few a few like smart ass things said mm-hmm. and just they're, they're just acting like they're ribbing him but there's a little bit of truth to it and yeah then things it's, get it's, a little awkward and heated yeah um but basically leads to like, you know, everybody's they take off and, and he's going he's trying to find his pajamas, which is very much a thing of the times. Yeah. Like now it's like, how how do how can we get this lead character to find some kind of evidence that his wife is a witch? Well, make him look for his pajamas in right. the dresser. And he's like trying to get his second drawer out, has to open her drawer, which right. is the top drawer. They share a dresser, which is another sign of the times <laughs> um, takes her old drawer out and finds this like little box of some kind it's like a little ceramic yeah trinket. jar or something yeah. yeah and there's a dead spider inside yeah and it's just so funny like you know witchcraft right yes she has a dead but at first he doesn't you know he doesn't question it he's like why is why are you a weirdo and you're keeping what why do you have this dead spider right this and, and, a souvenir but. yeah which is even <laughs> like the worst excuse ever like well i you know speaking for myself i i do have a preserved octopus and a beetle and a one the beetles in like a little jar and the octopus is on like a little wooden thing but they're so like I'm... decor right you don't keep them in your yeah. underwear drawer no no well one i don't have an underwear drawer just because my apartment's really small so <laughs> <laughs> so you share a dresser with your neighbor and if you find dead spiders, <laughs> no I've, I've i find dead spiders on a house sometimes but yeah I, you know I, I remember as a kid i was fascinated with spiders so it's not that yeah but I it's like too. he doesn't question you know he's like why do you have this and then, you know, things start rolling, rolling. Eventually, he gets to the point where he starts suspecting something. Right. Well, it starts off because after the bridge thing, she's frantically looking for something. And, like and under she, these tables and... Yeah, the I can't, And then she finds it on a lamp that there's like a little... A little voodoo doll. Yeah, a little thing. voodoo doll thing made out of like the tassels or something. And Yeah, know. I was like, how did it end up on the lampshade? I don't know. Yeah. Um, she was like spinning the lamps looking yeah. for it, but... It's like as an audience, we know or we're starting to learn like she's up to something or, mm-hmm. or something more to her. And I can't remember. Did they like did someone allude to the fact that like there's a reason he's all this stuff is working for him? 
Like, it seemed like they were, like, when they were ribbing him while they were playing, it was almost like, they weren't saying, like, necessarily witchcraft, but sort of like... Well, he calls know. his wife his good luck charm. Right, there you go. That's point. what I was yeah. thinking, yeah, where it's like, you know, you're my good luck charm, and I'm like, well, knowing the title of this movie, Burn yeah. Witch Burn, like, <laughs> we, we're going in with already sort of a little bit of knowledge of where this is going to go, but um, eventually his suspicion leads him to dig around a little bit more. Right. And he finds all kinds of shit. Well, we should also uh, probably say that he's, and maybe you said it during the, the intro, but like the class he's teaching, he's teaching like rationality and, you know, he's against superstition and religion and, and any, and, you know, horoscopes or whatever. Yeah, so what, that what kind of you, stuff. And what so, would you say that class was? Like, I was trying to figure that out. Like, uh, some sort of like, probably like just a, said what he, he did say what he taught. Well, I mean, there's like a I whole department because he's getting like the. Yeah, I'm trying to think. I can't remember exactly what it was. But it's, yeah, yeah it was interesting. Uh, like, yeah, that he's teaching this. And so he's like literally they set it up. So he's like literally up already opposed to yeah. everything that's about to happen to him. Yeah. Where it's almost like, you know. A religion or like an atheist, you know, like a religious teacher married to like an atheist or yeah. something, you know. Well, it's, a, it's actually kind of like um, one of the Hammer Dracula movies. I think it's Dracula has risen from the grave. The the juvenile lead in that is an atheist, and you know, so he doesn't believe in vampires and stuff like that. Of course, by the end of the movie, having faced Dracula, he then becomes right. religious. I, I, and, he's a believer. Yes. Yeah, yeah and so. He eventually, yeah, he, he goes home and he starts suspecting stuff. And, and I'm jumping all over the place anytime you, you because uh, uh, I, I don't retain stuff like I used to. I probably have to watch this three times. to yeah. I, And I always find it like a weird balance where I'm like, I want to take notes as the movie's happening, but then I'm not paying attention to the movie. I'm right. Paying yeah. too much attention to my notes. So um, I know he finds like all kinds of stuff. Like there's more yeah, than there's one spider. The, these, there's little yeah. things. little All these little, little trinkets. And, yeah. And he gauze all over the house and yeah and he waits and... He, he like spreads them out all over the table and waits for her to get home um actually i think so, it's like, like like an intervention with a drug addict well the the, the night I, I did remember something that happened before that i think it was the night that they played bridge like she gets him or maybe it was a different night but she get, doesn't she get him like she, she's getting him trashed and she's like basically forcing no, it's a little later okay it's later in the movie we'll, we'll jump back to that but uh she comes, she walks in the door and she sees all of her shit thrown about. And she's like, uh, what's going on? Where is he? And he comes out and he's like, so what is all this? And she's like, uh, should we have dinner? And she's like doing everything to like avoid it. And he's like, are we going to address all that stuff? And she's just like trying to brush it off. Like, mm-hmm. um, I think it's time for bed. You know, like, yeah. let's go. And it's like, are we going to address any of this stuff? <laughs> just a bunch of souvenirs. Right. Um, and then he gets sort of pissed off about it and is like this is witchcraft like he confronts her like right. this stuff i know right. what this is it's witchcraft and we need to get rid of it mm-hmm. she's like i don't recommend that yeah um things could go bad and uh he's throwing all the stuff into the fire and there's a point where he finds this like locket with yeah his she picture. gives him, yeah she gives him a locket and then behind one of the pictures is uh, at first, I thought it was like toenail clippings. I think it's like plants <laughs> not, or dirt or something. Yeah, I was gonna say I went back and and rewatched. I, I rewound it because I couldn't tell what it was, and they don't really explain what it is. But uh, yeah, he pulls out the picture and he throws that into the fire, and she's frantic, like yeah, trying to get probably. the picture out. 
Like, all the other stuff was... I think the picture was thrown in accidentally. As you're right. Saying. Yeah, everything else, she was sort of like, okay, you can trash that, but not your picture. And that was clearly a bad omen, because yeah. the next day, he wakes up, and shit starts going really bad for him. Oh, yes. Like, everything starts going bad. Like, everything he had going for him, it, it turns 180. He gets to class. Well, or it, happens, to school. it starts happening a little earlier. He gets, he gets a phone that call. obscene phone call. Yeah, he gets an obscene phone call, uh... And he doesn't know who it is, and he thinks it's sort of like a prank. But yeah. it's like the first thing that kicks it off. He gets a, he gets a call, and then when he gets to to school the next day, um, he gets called in, and one of or for, no first he gets like I think accosted by one of his male students who's like, "Did you hit on my girlfriend? Or right. you've had an affair with my girlfriend?" And he's like, "She's lying. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. You're crazy." Then he gets called into the principal's office where she is, where she's confessed or or try I guess not confessed. She's ratting on him telling them and i was like is she saying that there was an affair or that he raped her i mean not not that either one's right right but right. it was like is she saying it was consensual or i think she's mostly saying like he took advantage of her right, as a teacher and of course as outsiders looking in we know that didn't happen mm -hmm. but it's like Oh shit! Like what changed in the time between then and now? Oh, right. the picture burned. He got rid of all the witchcraft stuff. We start realizing that it wasn't necessary. Not just like his good luck charm, but his like not bad luck charm. Right. Like all those things were protection. They were right. And and I started to wonder. I'm like, well, were all these things gonna happen? Like, and she was protecting him, but also. I mean, spoiler. You know, not to listen to this if you don't want to be spoiled. But later on, like. Not only were thing were those things protecting him, but someone else was working magic against him. Yeah. So when that protection was down, shit started hitting a fan, and uh, eventually, like they're questioning him, and he he goes in and gets hurt, like sort of finally, sort of confess that she made it up, mm -hmm. like like puts the heat on her, but then goes back to his classroom, and this this guy shows up with a gun. Yeah. And he's about to shoot him, and they have like a. a confrontation he gets the gun away from him uh calls security gets him out of there but shit starts getting bad yeah yeah so and shouldn't shouldn't have burned that stuff <laughs> no no and and the this is this goes up sort of to the, like the middle part where oh he almost gets run over by a truck too yeah yeah he steps out in the street and nearly gets smashed by a truck uh yeah things are just he's having a, a rough day yeah and he gets home and i think this is where um the scene i was talking about earlier yeah, right where he's, he's like i've had a really shitty day i'm gonna have a drink mm -hmm. and he gets a little uh a little tipsy and then she's like f she does some kind of some kind of i don't know if it's witchcraft or something on some water or wine or or something but she's forcing yeah. him to drink it yeah i don't yeah she does something because like she gets him to I think he takes like three sips of whatever's in that glass and then she downs the rest of it to yeah. something because well also we should probably she tells a story of of when they went to jamaica and she saw uh like a voodoo priest bring someone back to life and and uh she talks about how how much she you know she loves her husband and so um you know, she goes through and says, you know, I, I would give my life for you. And mm -hmm. so that's kind of that leads into this scene that we're talking about. So she's she's doing something. She's planning to, you know, try to get the the hex off him, I think, and, and onto her or something like that. That's what I interpreted. 
Yeah, I thought it was interesting because it, to me, and maybe again my interpretation of this whole thing, it seemed like um, you would think like '60s they would just be like all witchcraft is evil and bad, and this this woman you know is doing the wrong thing. But it sort of painted her in like a good light, where it was like, yeah, she's done this just to protect someone she loves. She's not doing it to. She wasn't necessarily doing it for good luck for him. He he was a smart guy mm. that deserved his accolades and he was doing the the work and actually deserved that, you know, promotion. It, but the wit the the bad witchcraft that was coming at him from right. the other side was was the bad, you know, mm-hmm. so it was almost like a good witch versus bad witch right. vibe going. Um because eventually he comes home and she's gone, right? I'm trying to remember. Yes. Either he wakes up and she's gone. I think she I think he wakes up from his well, let me think here. I'm trying to think because I know I can't remember if he wakes up with a hangover. I think he wakes up, he's got a hangover, and she's not there. Yeah, and the phone's been off the hook because the school's well, she, been trying to call him. No, she and she's dismantled it too. Yeah, yeah. She, he he wakes no. up and and the, that other teacher I think or or someone at the school comes in and is like, "We've been trying to reach you. We have like a meeting." Well, and because she the reason why she dismantled. The telephone is because, like, he earlier he brought a recording of, that he had done of a lecture. Oh, yes, yes. And he there got was, it, like, he, some... He got it in the we, mail, like, anonymously. Yeah. And he was like, what is that? And it was a recording of him, yeah, doing a but, lecture. like, over it was this weird like beat a, or, yeah, or like a music cur- of some... Curse type, yeah. So it was like a hypno- hypnotic... Yeah, she was, like, music. begging him not to listen to it. Yeah, because she she's getting all all riled up. Because of this, this, this anti ASMR sound. <laughs> yeah, very much. Uh, I always think of like Army of Darkness. I couldn't, know? I couldn't tell if he could hear that or not at when he was listening to it, or if right. he just thought it was subliminal, like some, some weird subliminal yeah, message, or he just thought it was some some uh, contamination on the tape or something. Or right, there's something wrong with it. Because this is this is the day before digital recording. This is right. real to real actual magnetic on, tape. Yeah, physical tape on a reel. Um, and she's begging him not to listen to it. And eventually, like, she disappears. And, and they show up at his house. Like, a, I don't remember if it was like a, another professor or the head of the dean or somebody shows up. And they're like, we've been trying to call you. We have this, like, meeting. He's like, you know, where's my wife? Has anyone seen my mm-hmm. wife? And someone tells him, like, She's headed to like the cottage or something. Yeah, they have like a little cottage out on the coast somewhere. Yeah. So he heads out that way. Um, And then this is where it sort of gets a little bit wild. Yeah. Like weird. I mean, it was it was pretty standard normal. I mean, we're we're getting a little here and there on the intriguing stuff, but it's pretty, pretty safe until this point. And this is where everything sort of goes crazy. Like he Mm -hmm. gets there. And he keeps thinking he sees her, and he's hearing stuff, and he's walking around. And this is sort of where it gets atmospheric and cool. Yeah, that's where. Like, uh, like you said, this like sort of abandoned building on the coast. Well, it's their it's their cottage, is what it is. Yeah, but it has like spooky vibes to it. There's yeah, like, there's it's like, like this... not not well maintained. No, for us. no. I mean, it's not quite like Dracula's castle, but it's also not like it's not completely you know abandoned, but it's also not like a mansion by any means. But no, uh, it's sort of like an old timey. Like, you know, where is she? Like, he's going through this house looking for her, and, he, you know, he keeps hearing things and mm-hmm. seeing things, and it's, it's like a psych out, a red herring here or there, or whatever. And eventually, I'm trying to remember, the the person that shows up, is that, like, a, the other professor's wife or, or the other old lady who shows up that we learn is, like, casting the bad spells against him? It's a colleague of some sort. I think right. she's a, a, a like a 
I know she's one of the... I don't know if she's a professor. I think she's a professor, but she's also the the guardian of the girl who accuses right. the hero of, of rape, so... Um, so, yeah, she's, she's there to sort of go after him. Yes. And uh, we learn that she's the one that's casting bad spells against him, so there's more witchcraft, not just his wife, but this lady is mm-hmm. the one that's is casting bad spells against him. Um... Eventually, there's like a little bit of cat and mouse back and forth, and uh, she meets her fate. Yes. A giant uh, a big bird. T- yes, which has been foreshadowed. There's all these eagle statues all over the campus. Right. And, and, and there's even some scenes with a real... Is that a real eagle, or is it like a, a, no, that was a vulture? A no, it's a real eagle i don't know what kind it is right i, I was like that's a, not a bald eagle because that's no, it's like it looks it's like, like a golden eagle or something or maybe a huge and scary and, yeah yeah and it was yeah that was definitely interesting there's there's one point where it, to make the eagle look even bigger because these are big birds but to make it look like it's like 20 feet long or it has a 20 feet uh wingspan they they had like a miniature set like a facade of the, yeah, yeah of it and it made it look even huge and uh, it's like that. That's almost. That's kind of also like a hypnotic suggestion as well, because he. We find out at the end when he when that witch is defeated, she. The, you know, because throughout it, his coat gets slashed, but then afterwards, like it doesn't. His coat is all whole, so it's it's a, a hallucination. A hallucination yeah. yeah, they they make him hallucinate and and all that, and then it gets turned on her because i her i believe it's her husband comes in and plays the she's got the recording now and he plays it and and so then they can hear it and then they they get they get they under their own spell yeah yeah Yeah, and and when the the cement eagle crushes her like her hand falls oh yeah the the recording rolls out like the the material rolls out of her hand and uh it was a bit confusing, like it got a little bit confusing there towards the end for me, where I was yeah. like, you know, what's real and what's reality, but I think that's the point, right. it's like, yes. you know, we're sort of in this, it's witchcraft, so it's like, you know, we're, we're along the ride with him, that's why I was saying I would like to watch this one again, and knowing, like, that that's the good and the bad of going in completely blind, like, I almost wish I would have read the synopsis or watched a trailer or something ahead of time, just so mm-hmm. I was like... I have a little idea because literally all I knew was burn, witch burn. I was like, that sounds right. cool. Let's watch that. I didn't know what year. I didn't know anything about it. And when I put it on Hoopla, I just hit play and I was like, okay, black and white. So mm-hmm. this is like sixties. That's cool. And you know, and, uh, like looking back, you know, I, I really enjoyed it. Like I said, like you said, it's probably not going to be a, a yearly watch or something, but, right. uh, you know, I wouldn't mind owning it on Blu-ray. It's really, it's a beautiful film. It's shot well and and has really strong performances, and the story is really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I would recommend it for people who like '60s horror, dark gothic type stuff. Yeah. It's not quite, it's not quite like your. There's no real monsters or madmen. No, uh, no psycho murders. I mean, it's, it's about witchcraft, but it doesn't get into your typical, uh, you know, long haired, long right. It doesn't. Yeah, it's witches. You know, I'll I'll compare it to horror hotel. It's definitely not that kind of because that that kind of movie. If you've seen it, and it's not it's not that there's not like a a bunch of like a conclave of of witches and warlocks getting together in the you know in robes in a graveyard. But it's it's 
And I imagine in 62 when, you know, people still, I mean, people now it's like, you know, I I know people who are are Wiccan and practice, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's like, we we have much open, much more open minds to that stuff now. Right. Compared to 62 where it was like, and, but again, like I said, it was sort of, I thought it was sort of cool to have like, they, they painted it a little bit in a good light where it was like the wife was using it for good. Right. You know, protecting her husband. I'm trying well, to think, when did Bewitch come out? That might have been was 60s it? or something. Yeah, too. I know it was yeah. the 60s, but I can't remember if it had been before, around, after before or after this. Yeah. I'm thinking, I don't know. Nikki would be the one to ask because she watched all that stuff more than I did. But um, it's sort of just like, I don't know. I, maybe if it was made 10 years earlier, it probably would have been a lot more um, hysteric. You know, like Probably, more yeah. like anti witch well, and stuff, but well, like it's based on a book uh, called Conjure Wife by Fritz Leiber Jr. and that uh, was first serialized in the magazine Unknown in 1943. So, and I I have not read that story, so I don't know how how um, close it is. Close, yeah, faithful. But I know Charles Beaumont and Richard Matheson both uh, admired the book, so I'm sure they stuck pretty close to it. Yeah, and I, I thought, again, I thought it was pretty fun. I definitely recommend checking it out. Uh, I have all kinds of trivia to go through. Um, so we'll take a quick break and hear from the Prescribed Films Podcast Network, and then we will be right back. You're listening to the Prescribed Films Podcast Network, home to hundreds of hours of free podcast entertainment. The shows on this network all have a common goal, providing you with the best discussions about movies and other forms of entertainment media. The PFPN hopes to fill your ear holes with audio joy. Visit our website with links to all the other amazing shows at www.thepfpn.com. Thanks for listening. And we are back. So as always, I have a little bit of trivia here I pulled from IMDb. I always warn people to take it with a grain of salt because who knows who put this on here and how true it is. Um, Star Peter Weingard initially found the script for Burn Witch Burn titled Night of the Eagle at the time to be rubbish and decided Mm -hmm. to pass on the film. Later, when he saw a luxury car that he desperately wanted to own, he went back and took the role for Norman Taylor (laughs) Asking to be paid exactly the amount of the cost of the car. So, uh, you know, not the best way to do it, but it, you can't really tell. He's, I didn't think he was phoning in. I thought no. all the performances are pretty good. Like, yeah. he's, he's a classically handsome actor. I mean, it's very typical of movies of this time to be like, right. you know, dark haired, uh, muscly man. He's also super smart. Um, but, you know, I, I've, if I would have uh, known that going in, I wouldn't ever have suspected that. He just took it as like a, a job. And I don't believe he was the first choice for the the lead role. I don't remember who. Yeah, I think I, I saw that he was like the second or third choice. Yeah. Um, when Norman hides in the classroom or when Norman hides in the classroom, I do not believe is written on the chalkboard with other keywords related to witchcraft. Something off screen appears to him and he backs up to the chalkboard in fear. After the PA system is silenced, he walks back to the door the blackboard has been smudged, creatively revealing the f- the phrase "I do believe." Okay, I did so, not notice that one. That that was one I was like, I wish I could go back and watch because I okay. missed that. Yeah, I, I missed that too. 
Um, but sort of a cool little, very, uh, made me think of like, okay, these guys are writers on Twilight Zone. Like somebody yeah. was like, you know, a cool little thing there. Uh, Peter Weingard attended, this was a funny one, Peter Weingard attended the premiere of the film with fellow British actor Alan Bates. Much to his disdain, he and Bates were the only people in the audience. <laughs> <laughs> years, <Whoops. laughs> yeah, years later, after the film received an American release, he was pleased to learn that Burn Witch Burn played in Times Square for several years and found a much bigger audience. So I can't imagine like the defeat of <laughs> bringing a friend to see your movie and yeah. being like, we're the only two people who like, paid. Hey, wait a minute. God damn it. Right. Uh, he's like, you know, I'm, I'm, I brought a pen or I'm going to sign autographs. And yeah, yeah. No one shows up. Well, I mean, but then again, I mean, he thought it was rubbish. I mean, he must have changed his mind when he when he was filming. So, yeah. Um, American International Pictures insisted on playing up the horror occult themes of the film uh, when marketing it. As part of this, the film's original title was changed to the more ominous Burn Witch Burn, a line that Margaret Johnson speaks in the film. Mm-hmm. Also, the voiceover opening where a spell is cast upon the audience was added for setting the tone, which I didn't bring up, but I thought that was really cool. Like the black yeah. screen at the beginning and just the straight up like uh, like to set the tone like i thought it was it, really cool yeah it reminded me it, so, it sounded like something that william castle would have done exactly what i was thinking with like uh house on haunted hill even like the beginning mm-hmm. of that when it's setting up you know it warns the audience i love that kind mm-hmm. of stuff the showmanship that we don't have in films anymore i know um people take them too seriously now yeah Come on, let's have yeah, some fun yeah uh, star Peter Weingart said that his reaction to the infamous eagle attack was genuine as the huge bird had a nine foot wingspan and tremendous tal- talons. Yeah. So I imagine. I would too if right, I had a bit. Yeah. I mean, you can you can only train an animal so much and that's a huge fucking bird. That it, yeah. And I I don't want that to be <laughs> flying toward if I we, we've all seen that flying towards me I run we've all seen that hilarious clip of uh like the eagle perched on Donald Trump's desk and it goes at him have you seen that I don't think I have he, he, he about sh- I'm pretty sure he shit his pants it's pretty funny but I'm like oh maybe I have seen yeah, like a clip of it yeah, yeah. It, it's uh, <laughs> uh birds are scary dude and, and back that thing like in the movie was like freaky I was like what is that thing I, I've never seen an eagle that looked like that because it was like it just looked like an overgrown like vulture or uh yeah it was it's like a gin- ginormous crow or something it was yeah it was like brown yeah well i say brown it was black, black and white, and white but movie, i, I right, assume but it, it was dark. brown but yeah it was dark yeah um raw meat was placed on peter weingar's back to make the trained eagle swoop down at him during the finale after a while the meat became soured and the bird would stop diving for it yeah so he not only had this f- fucking bird i hope the car was worth it he had this yeah bird, just... bird swooping. i can't imagine yeah any car worth it to me but i'm not a car guy so yeah uh you know back then it was probably it's probably a really cool car um if, if his whole you know salary went towards one car but uh he had to have you know sour meat put on him too um well, I mean, yeah how else are you gonna get because birds i don't I don't think eagles are special, especially smart. Yeah. Not like like a crow or a raven, which right. are really smart. Right. And so you have to do something to get them. You know, they're not gonna not not like a dog or something that's gonna. You know, you train them with like a, a verbal command or something right. to yeah. do something. Yeah. A pair of stone dragons sit on the tailor's mantelpiece. Originally in the novel conjure wife which the film is based on it's a stone dragon that comes to life instead of the eagle of the film 
Oh, okay. But once again, we we touched on that beginning where it's like you have to, you know, because of budgets and, yeah. and obviously back then, um, you couldn't put a fucking dragon. So it's I mean, like you could, just, but have been like a big puppet and would or stop motion or something. Yeah, yeah something it just really bad. Have looked great. Yeah, so uh, you know they got creative and put it, made it a bird, and it turned out much better. Mm-hmm. Um, the infamous stone eagle is shown in the foreground or background of every scene and the university, which you pointed out uh, a little foreshadowing throughout. I, I got it was like. It's like Ghostbusters, you know. Ghostbusters has all those like gargoyles and yeah. statue yeah. iconography going on. Uh, despite the film having two American screenwriters who usually worked in Hollywood, the plot of Fritz Lieber Jr.'s famous novel has been moved to an English setting. However, the dialogue still contains a few Americanisms, as when Colin Gordon character asks, "Will you beat out my brother-in-law?" which is no, which no Englishman of the period would have said. Which they, they never said brother-in-law. I guess there. that's I guess, oh. that. I guess that's just I'm something real, we do here. I, I wonder what they, what they say over bloody England. chap. I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. Uh, maybe they do now. You know, just like at the time they didn't. Yeah. Um, the original script contained much more occult and voodoo material. Material, however, this was cut down as director Sidney Hayers felt the relationship of the Taylors needed to be the focus of the film. So. Uh, I've mentioned it here before, but uh, Matt Gorley, he talks on his podcast about um, he's like, he doesn't believe in heaven or hell. But if he's like, if there was such a thing, I would in my heaven, it would be like every version of a movie that we never got to see would be on the shelf for you to watch. So we'd, right. we'd be able to go and watch the the, ver- the original version with more occult and, and mm-hmm. voodoo stuff. And he's like, you know, we'd see. The, the original version of Firestarter directed by John Carpenter or, right. you know, things that almost happened that we never, never got. He's like, in my heaven, those things exist and I mm-hmm. get to watch them. So I, you know, this would be on that shelf. But, you know, sometimes that, uh, our imagination of what that is is better is than, better than yeah. what it would yeah. actually had been. Exactly. Um, the film is very loose remake of the universal horror movie Weird Woman from 1944, which... Now I sort of want to watch that. But that was only, I mean, it's like, that's only 20 years before. But we're, we're remaking movies like five years later now, so. Well, I mean, they were doing that, too. Yeah. When uh, the silent era came to an end, they remade a bunch of silent movies for sound. Right. So, I mean, that's, that's we complain about, about it as if it's some new thing, but it's not. It's that's right. how Hollywood has been since yep. the very beginning. And, and we'll continue. Yeah. As long as it makes money, they're yeah. going to keep making it. It's a business. Yep. The second, this is the second of three in the most acclaimed uh, c- cinematic adaptation of Fritz Lieber Jr.'s novel Conjure Wife. So there's uh, two others, which I'm guessing uh, Weird Woman was one and then mm-hmm. maybe one after. I'm not sure. I, I wouldn't be surprised if we get another sometime soon. There might have been one since then. You know, who knows? I said three of them, so there's probably one that probably took place. Maybe probably made it in the like the seventies or something yeah. when, when kind of, or I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure. I, it didn't list what the uh, the newer or or the third one is, but uh, the shot of the eagle bursting through the door was achieved by punching a glove puppet through a miniature of the door. There are only a few frames of the sequence before a very quick cut to a shot of an actual eagle in a miniature of the hallway, which you mentioned. But the shape of the hand and wrist can be just be made out in silhouette. 
Um, I thought, you know, I didn't even notice I, that. I didn't either. I thought I thought they just shoved a bird through the right. wall. So, so so pretty good, uh, you know, for its time, they knew their restrictions and yeah. did not push them. A lot of these older movies, you'll see stuff, and it's sort of a charm now, where it's like, you, you when you see bad mm-hmm. stuff, it's sort of like, okay, that that's like fun how they did that. And, and this yeah. is cool, like you mentioned, the miniatures, like, I love that more so than CGI. Like, even if I know... CGI has kind of taken away the mysteriousness of how things it's more fun to wonder how was that effect achieved right yeah nowadays i say oh it's a computer oh yeah all right then i think using it sparingly to like help fix things maybe but i don't know that's a whole i i I can do a whole podcast oh yeah that's that's a debate on its own yeah and uh the final piece of trivia that was on imdb reportedly the california home of star janet blair burnt during production Ironically, it occurred during the shooting of the climactic scene where the Taylor house burns down. <laughs> Blair received a call while shooting the blazing sequence that her actual house was on fire. So a little uh, little bit of uh, superstition like there. That, like they're on the cursed films. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Sort of crazy to think like because in the movie where it's like, you know, I'm burning your house, the mm-hmm. house burns and then her real house, like three degrees of this. Yeah. Pretty wild to think. Um, but yeah, that's all I have for trivia. Um I know if you're local, you can buy Harley Ramsey's books at Burlington by the Book, which we've plugged before when uh, Brett mm-hmm. Royer was on the show. We have we're, we're lucky to have an awesome record store, awesome bookstore. Uh, you know, I don't think people uh, or I comic think, bookshop. Yeah, I think people take it for granted uh, here in town, but a lot of especially small town Iowa, a lot of places just don't have that. So when people visit, they just get excited, and, and uh, we're lucky not only to have a a cool bookstore, but one that's filled to the brim with local authors. Mm-hmm. But uh, where else can people get your your books? Uh, they can get it off of uh, online, uh, Amazon. Uh, the company that I I use to publish my stuff, Lulu.com, L-U-L-U.com, and just type in Harley Ramsey in the search bar, and it should take you to my store, and you can get the physical copies. They're print-on-demand, so... You're not going to get them in like three days. You're going to like a week or something for it to print. And also the digital, the the uh, ebook versions, like a lot of the short stories, they're they're kind of it's it's almost like 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 in like with music, like they'll they'll put singles out, mm-hmm. and then they'll put out a physical album. That's why I do it with my my collections. I'll put, put the out short stories in yeah, the collection. On. Yep, cool. So if you want them in physical form, you got to buy the collection. If you but just if you want them on your Kindle, you can just download it, it from Amazon. Or, yeah, if, you know, if you're whatever. impatient and can't wait, or if you just want a small taste to see yeah. uh, if it's your thing, which I think if you're listening to the show, you probably have a similar taste to, to me and Harley. So, um, And I'll, I'll make sure to put it in the show notes, too. Uh, you have any upcoming convention signings, shows? Uh, QC Planet FunkCon will be the first one. That is in June. Let me bring up the schedule. You got that in yeah. June, and then June twenty fourth through the twenty sixth, it'll be in Davenport at the uh, River Center. Very cool. So, so come get your books in person if you want. Like I said, you can you can go to, if you're local, go down to Burlington by the Book and get them. Uh, yeah, just so cool that you know you can just go buy your books, man. <laughs> yeah, and uh, like I said, we'll have to have you back on. It was it was always you know we had to narrow it down, which means for this movie. So it means that we have plenty of other movies to, mm-hmm. to get around to. Uh, and, and we've already had a few ideas during this recording, but 
Uh, I'm glad I, I got to watch Burn Witch Burn. I'm glad we picked that one. It was a lot of fun. All right. Well, thanks again for coming on, and uh, I look forward to having you back. All right. Thanks again for listening to today's episode. If you enjoy the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. A special thank you goes out to my friend Scott Schreiner for our intro and outro music. We'll see you next week on First Time Podcast. <laughs>